Enough of that. Let's open our Bibles this morning to uh, Second Samuel. We're in Second Samuel chapter 18. We're going to put in at verse 19 and read through to chapter 19, verse 8. We're studying the life of David through a verse by verse, chapter by chapter look at First and Second Samuel, or in chapter 18. The topic in these verses: two messengers come to David bearing what he will consider the bad news. That his son was killed in the battle. The title of our message, The Bad News Bearers. Let's pray. Father, thanks uh, so much, Lord. We enjoyed the worship. Our hearts are filled with the wonder of your love for us. And now, Lord, uh, you can lead and guide us by your spirit into insight as to how much uh, we're to love you. With all of our heart, mind, strength and soul, Lord, as we see uh, some things about uh, assessing our performance as Christians, Lord, as we look forward to that day that we look into your eyes and you look at us and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Lord, fill us with the wonder of your love, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Experts say there is a decline in the American work ethic. Uh, it's showing up more and more in younger workers. So I'm sorry to say that, but it's true. According to one survey, with over 50,000 respondents, that's a pretty good uh, group, and I quote, young people are a self-admitted group of huge slackers. And uh, so they asked these questions, and this is what people admitted of themselves. And so I think it's probably worse than we think. Uh, Part of the report says, workers in their 20s are nearly five times more likely than workers in their 50s to describe their efforts as, quote, only the minimum. Older workers, on the other hand, are 40% more likely to work, quote, really hard. Now, I would hope that if these surveys were taken among believers in Jesus Christ, that 100% of the respondents in any age group would say that they are not just likely to work really hard, but are actually working really hard because they're doing it for the Lord. One Scripture we could use to support that, one of many, is Colossians 3, 23 and 24, which reads, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Now, if you go back to that Colossians passage, you'll see that the whatever you do uh, in that passage includes things like your marriage and your family life. It includes your church as well as your day-to-day employment. Since we ought to be working really hard as to the Lord, and since we are definitely going to stand before the Lord to receive the reward, it might be a good idea to take a look at our work ethic on a regular basis, especially since it's declining uh, out in the real world. Now, our passage in 2 Samuel describes how King David received and then reacted to the news that his traitorous son, Absalom, had been killed. As we see it unfold, we're going to be able to assess the performance of the messengers as messengers, and we can analyze David's reaction in terms of his responsibilities as the king, we might say in terms of his work ethic as the king. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you should assess your performance in whatever tasks God has entrusted to you. And number two, you should analyze your submission in whatever callings God has entrusted to you. Let's take a look, first of all, in chapter 18, beginning in verse 19, about our performance in the task God has given us. 
Now, we're obviously in the middle of a much longer story. Absalom had attacked David's forces and lost. While retreating on his mule through the thick forest, he got caught in a tree. David's general, Joab, thrust Absalom through with spears, had his ten attendants hack away at him, and then they buried him under a giant pile of stones. That ended the hostilities. How to tell King David that the battle was over, but that his son was dead, that was the next order of business. And so we pick up the story in verse 19. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, which, by the way, I have no idea how to pronounce his name, so it'll be Ahimaaz, Ahimaaz, Mahimahi, I don't know. It's just, I'm tough with these names. Then Ahimaaz, uh, the son of Zadok, so those of you who know I'm mispronouncing it, just flow with it, uh, said, let me run now and take the news to the king how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. Today you shall take no news because the king's son is dead. Why not send Ahimas? Well, he says because the king's son is dead was the message. And therefore, Joab probably had one of two things in mind. First of all, this is the kind of news that could get you killed if a king was in the wrong frame of mind. You know that old saying, don't kill the messenger? It's because they did kill messengers pretty frequently. Earlier in our story uh, of King David, a messenger brought to him news that King Saul had been killed. Now, he embellished it. He thought David would be happy that Saul was dead, so he said that he killed him. And David said, wow, this is a sad day for Israel, and it's a really sad day for you. Kill him. And they killed the messenger. And so, uh, it, it's, you know, and especially David, he had told his generals and all the army, don't harm my son Absalom. And so you just aren't sure how David is going to react to this news. Secondly, as we go into the story, this proves itself out. I think Joab knew that Ahimaaz would be unable to deliver the message in its entirety. We'll see that when he does have the opportunity to tell David, he withholds the truth about Absalom. He can't quite bring himself to tell David the truth. One of the first things to assess about serving the Lord then whether it's at home or at work or at church, out in the world, it's that uh, it's up to the Lord to assign us our various tasks. We can set ourselves up for failure when we insist on doing something God is not calling us to do while leaving things he has called us to do undone. And so in this case, Joab's in charge. Uh, Ahimaaz had a, a, you know, a zeal, as we'll see, to deliver this message. He was a messenger but it was not his task to perform. It was another's task, and we need to be uh, submitted to those decisions that the Lord makes. Verse 21, then Joab said to the Cushite, you go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. Now in this Cushite, we see several admirable spiritual qualities. Uh, if you want to be somebody in this story, he's a, a good candidate. First of all, we see humility in the very fact he was not named. It reminds us to be task-oriented and not to worry about recognition. I think encouragement is great, and there's nothing wrong with biblical encouragement, and we should encourage one another. We need to be careful because often encouragement sounds more like flattery, and flattery is a bad thing. There's a fine line there. Uh, but within that, that's okay. At the same time, if you don't receive encouragement for serving the Lord, 
uh, then look to the Lord for your encouragement. Uh, you, you can the, the best servant is the unnamed servant, the person who's not looking for recognition and who gets no recognition and just does it as unto the Lord. It's actually that's kind of the heart of servanthood, isn't it? That you would be the unrecognized, unnamed person in the background. So hard for us to really want to live up to that, though. Second, he was immediately available. As a messenger, he understood he might be called upon at any moment, especially during a time of conflict like this. So with us, we should at least have a sense that God wants to use us right where we are and therefore be ready. Sometimes it's because our lives are so monotonous. You know, we get up, we go to work, we see the same people, we come home and all that. We can sometimes miss opportunities because we don't think that anything is going to happen or a conversation is going to come up. And, and so it's an encouragement. Hey, be ready. Uh, you know, if you're a messenger in these times, you never knew when they were going to have to dispatch you. And so you just have to be ready to give an answer to every man of the hope that is in you. Another thing we see is that he was submissive. He didn't ask any questions. He just bowed to Joab uh, and he went about delivering the message. And perhaps most of all, he was willing to lay down his life in the delivering of this message. As we said, this is the kind of news that could get you killed. And I'm not sure who was in the proximity of the hearing of all of these things. But this Cushite probably wasn't stupid. And so Ahimaaz comes and he says, I want to bring the message to King David. And Joab says, yeah, no, the king's son is dead. I don't think you want to bring this message. Hey, Cushite, we're going to send you. You're an unnamed foreigner. You're expendable, basically, is what Joab was saying. If you get killed, eh, collateral damage, you know. And yet he, he understood that uh, this was his calling to lay down his life. You and I have good news. The gospel to deliver, it can literally get us killed. Most likely here in the United States, it will just kill opportunities for popularity and for advancement. Still, we are to humble ourselves. We're to be available to the Lord and bow to his leading. Verse 22, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, but whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? Now, this phrase, no news ready, seems to mean that he had nothing to add to what the Cushite would say. He wanted to go at the same time with the same message. And what we get from this is that there's no use duplicating effort. This is actually a very important realization. There is a lot of duplication of effort by Christians, especially in the church. When I was first asked to come to Hanford to pastor Calvary Chapel of Hanford, I had more of uh, what we like to call the Southern California mentality. I, at the time, I thought it was a good thing, but now I've been purged of those demons and I am solidly a citizen of the state of Central California. But anyway, uh, when I came up here, uh, it took a lot of convincing that the group of people that wanted to have a Calvary Chapel in Hanford really needed one. Uh, and, and I was kind of antagonistic about it. I said, well, where are you guys going to church now? Well, we're going, we're driving to Visalia. Well, wow, really? It was like the end of the world. How far is that? Oh, it's about 20 miles. I drove 20 miles just to, you know, get down the end of my driveway in Southern California practically. Seriously, I used to drive 45 miles just to get to work 
And then I drove around all day as an outside salesman. I drove 45 miles back. And in the winter, it was more like 100 miles because I had to find all these crazy back routes because routes were, you know, closed and all. So when they told me we have to drive, some of us, 25 miles, I thought, what a bunch of weenies, you know, and, and stuff. And then I said, so why don't you just find another good church in Hanford? And they, they didn't say there weren't any good churches. They said there are good churches, but there's nothing quite like a Calvary Chapel. Now, that was kind of news to me, too, because where I was at Calvary Chapel of San Bernardino, and there was a Calvary Chapel of Redlands was less than a mile away. Calvary Chapel of Rialto, and then was Fontana, and then there was Riverside, and then there was, you know, it seemed like there was a Calvary Chapel on every block. And, when, and, and there were churches that were just like Calvary Chapel. Uh, and so I, it took me a lot of convincing to realize Hey, you know, here in the Central Valley, to drive from uh, LNAS or even Hanford to Visalia to go to church, it, it's like going to another state, you know. Uh, it really is. Uh, I understand that. Now, to me, a trip, you know, to Save Mart is like, uh, has to be planned for, you know. It's like, hey, we're out of milk. <laughs> That's just too bad, you know. I mean, you know, I mean, I'll save Mart. You know, I could walk there faster than I could, you know, but anyway. And so I understand that. And, and really, lo- there are good churches in Hanford, but there wasn't, and I think there still isn't anything just like Calvary Chapel with its particular approach to things. And so why duplicate effort? A lot of times, churches just, you know, a group of people really just says, hey, we want to do exactly what we're doing, but we want to do it. We want to be the ones that are doing it. And so they duplicate themselves. And, you know, God is gracious. I think that starts off, you know, as a split and something that really is not honoring to the Lord. But then over time, God, uh, you know, he he brings grace to the situation. And so don't duplicate effort. There's no reason to send out two messengers uh, with the same message to the same place. Verse 23. Whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he said to him, run Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain, and he outran the Cushite. Ahimaaz insisted, zeal to serve the Lord is to be commended, but I think it needs to be tempered by obedience. Just because I want to do something doesn't mean I ought to do it. Joab let him go. We can't be sure why. Maybe he thought the Cushite had an adequate head start. By the time Ahimaaz arrived, there'd be nothing to tell, really. I will tell you one thing, it's hard to say no sometimes, especially to a persistent person. Still, it's better to say no if no is the answer. Aren't you always amazed, those of you who watch American Idol, at the early stages when these people come in and they say, I've been singing all of my life and... This is, you know, I was born to this. A star is going to be born. And they are awful. Now, I've decided in my heart that as much as I enjoy that, it's probably sinful for me. But then I say, hey, they're the ones, they're the ones that are saying they're good and they're not. And so they sing and they get stopped and the judges, some of them try and be nice about it. And they, you know, and then they have a genuine reaction. You're sitting there thinking they must know that they're awful, but they don't. They have a genuine reaction that what's the matter with you? This is real talent, you know, and, and they, you know, they have fun with that and all that. But you know what the problem is? Somewhere along the line, all of their lives. Those individuals have been told first by family and then by friends that they have talent. 
And right from the beginning, they should have been told, you're awful. (laughs) What? You want to end up on American Idol looking awful? Hey, I went to a worship conference one time. We took some of the teams down there years ago. And one of the uh, sessions, a gentleman, I forget his name, but he was a, a, a Christian record producer and also a worship leader. And one of the key things he stressed, he says, hey, have auditions. And if people are awful, tell them they are awful. And everybody had that. Oh, how harsh, how sad. Well, no, it's the best thing you can do for a person because if you're an awful singer, if you can't really play the guitar, if you don't know what you're doing musically at that point in your life, then God has something else for you to be doing rather than trying to be Christian idol and, and, you know, and thinking that you have talent. And it doesn't matter that your mom and dad said you have talent. You don't. And somebody needs to tell you you don't have talent. And then people, you know, uh, now... I will say that everybody I've told, you have no talent, is no longer a friend of mine, but I'm a friend to them. I am a friend to them, and I stand by that. Now listen, I used to think I was going to be a famous singer. Hey, now just a minute now, okay. I'll tell you why. I'm going to tell you something that most of you don't know about me uh, in my past. My oldest brother was a teen idol in Southern California. He went by the name of Tony Penn. And uh, he never made the big time, but he recorded several records. He played at Pacific Ocean Park. He was on the Wink Martindale show. How many of you even know what I'm talking about? He was on the Wink Martindale show. Uh, as an up-and-coming singer, if you search the Internet for Tony Penn, P-E-N-N, and the record, his famous record was King or a Fool. You can find sites that have clips of his singing King or a Fool. And so naturally, I thought, Tony Penn, Gene Penn. <laughs> Didn't really pan out for me. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's the way. And so, you know, uh, no one told me, hey, you've got talent. You're more talented than your brother. No, they never said that because it wasn't true. My dad said, you need to go to college. If you have any hope at all, you need to get a degree. Uh, And then, of course, he's super disappointed in me now. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. So anyway, don't encourage people to do things they're not called to do. You need to step up to the plate, especially if you're in a position of authority. And with all the humility that you can muster, just say you're awful. Think of something. You know, remember that, you know, the expression, don't quit your day job. Use that. Now, Ahimaaz, he outran the Cushite because he knew a shortcut. Was that a good thing? Was that to be commended? Eh, In light of the fact that he will fail to properly deliver the message, taking a shortcut and getting there first wasn't a good idea. The obvious application for us in whatsoever we do for the Lord, wherever we do it, don't take shortcuts. The no shortcut principle applies to our devotional life. There's no shortcut to deepening our walk with the Lord. And it applies to all the things that we do for the Lord. You know, anybody can start well. It's finishing well that counts. Verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted his eyes and looked. And there was a man running alone. And the watchman cried out and told the king. And the king said, 
If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there is another man running alone. And the king uh, said, he also brings news. Now, a lone runner would be a good sign. For one thing, it meant that the army was not retreating. uh, And so something was happening in the battlefield and they were able to send a messenger back. A second runner with additional news is really quite confusing in a time when you depended on messengers. So here's one guy and here's another guy right on his tail. What happened between the time this first guy was sent out? It must be something monumental. So here's a guy with a message, but here's another guy with a message. And then you have to factor in, did one guy outrun the other? And so what's the message? There's going to be a confusion. Uh, Or, you know, in today's parlance, it's like sending out a message without the attachment. You ever do that? See the attach. Whoops. No attachment, you know. And so what's the message? So David says, well, I guess he also brings news. Again, I would stress that I think it can be better to support the first messenger rather than send another with the same news. We see this a lot on the mission field. We need to look for people to support who are already doing the work, already delivering the gospel, rather than establishing something new just because we want to. If there's a real need, a genuine leading, then go for it. But you don't need to be in the same place doing the same thing. It'd be better to support the person that's already doing it. Verse 27, so the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, oh, he's a good man. He comes with good news. Remember uh, Chariots of Fire, Eric Little? He had that crazy running style where, you know, once he, you know, was going to win, he'd throw his head back and he would just run some crazy style that, you know, you know, just he had to be the Lord, you know, because nobody can really run that way. And so Ahimaaz, he had his own style as a runner. And so when you saw him, you thought, that's, that's the son of Zadok. Verse 28, so Ahimaaz called out and said to the king, all is well. And then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. Okay, delivered up. What does that mean exactly? So the king said, is the young man Absalom safe? You know, you could be delivered up in a lot of different ways. You could be dead, you could be a prisoner. Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. And the king said, turn aside, stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. So ultimately, he absolutely fails in his mission. He brings the message first after all his talk. And David wants to know, is Absalom dead? And he says, I saw a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff was going on back there. And David essentially, you know, says, okay, just stand over there. In other words, you're no help to me whatsoever. And so Ahimaaz fails. Maybe Joab initially said no to him because he knew David would interpret it as a sign that Absalom was alive and well. uh, And he didn't want to give David a false hope and then deliver the bad news. Uh, whatever reason, uh, he fails. And so verse 31, just then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, there is good news, my Lord, the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. Now, that's the truth. And the king said to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord, the king and all who rise against you to do harm 
Be like that, young man. Oh, wow. It's, it's a nice way of saying, yeah, he's dead. He's, he's like your enemies. What happened to him needs to happen to all your enemies. The truth is, I can't imagine a more concise, a more accurate, a more compassionate way to have delivered the message. You know, I'm kind of, don't laugh, I'm kind of a student of how to deliver bad news. Uh, it's not easy. A lot of you have had to deliver bad news. In my life, I've had to deliver more than my share of bad news. Uh, and it's, there's, there's an art to it I haven't quite discovered yet. Uh, it's just difficult. This is a great delivery. says, you know, because you know, he keeps it into perspective. Absalom was an enemy. He doesn't just say, yeah, your son Absalom is dead. He was hanging in a tree and they speared him. You know, he says, no. May all the enemies of my Lord the King be as this young man. Yeah, he's dead. He deserves to be dead, etc., etc. So very, very, uh, a perfect delivery. As we're leaving this section, do you regularly assess your performance in the tasks that God has given you? You and I should. We should have a strong work ethic, whether it's at home or in the church, out at work or out in the world. In fact, it's good for us that the rest of the world is declining in their work ethic. Because as we give 100% unto the Lord, we shine all the brighter. We, uh, you know, people see, well, what are you doing? When 40% of the, of the workforce is saying, yeah, I do the bare minimum to get by. And then you come in, whatever age you are, and you're doing 100%. Somebody's going to ask you what that's all about. And you're going to be able to tell them that it's all about looking beyond the situation you're in. And serving the Lord Jesus Christ who's alive and who you expect a reward from. It may not always be the most positive thing. People may start to ridicule you or complain or whatever. But it, it, it's easy evangelism, I think. Being a, being a solid, 100% committed to the task person is easy evangelism because you're doing it for the Lord. Now, as we move on to chapter 19, you should analyze your submission and whatever callings God has entrusted to you. The aftermath of the news, David's son was dead, regardless that Absalom had murdered his half-brother, that he had rebelled against David and declared himself king, that in the ensuing conflict, 20,000 Israelites had been needlessly killed. David loved him as a father and reacted to the news that he had lost not an enemy, but a son. Verse 33, chapter 18. And the king was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What father would not rather die in place of his child? Part of us cannot fault David for his reaction. We love our children when they are disobedient, when they rebel against our leading, even when they cause trouble. We're the ones that hang in there with them. We can certainly understand David's heart as a father. Abba, David was more than a father. He was the king of Israel. He had a responsibility beyond being a father to his children, and that was being a shepherd to God's people. He did not have the luxury of ignoring his responsibilities as king to indulge his grief as a father even for a moment. Does that sound harsh? Maybe, but it's really true. We expect our leaders, people in positions of authority, to act responsibly and appropriately. 
We expect them to put aside their own feelings, their own grief or anger to comfort and lead us. Do you remember after 9-11 looking forward to what the President of the United States would say to give comfort and hope to a nation that had been rocked? It doesn't matter who the President was. It happened to be Bush. But there was a national sense of Somebody needs to address this. Someone needs to say something about this. You can't have the President of the United States getting on TV and, and doing a David here. Oh, I don't know what to do. I wish it was me and not them. What am I going to do? That won't do. I bet a lot of presidents have felt that way when they have to make these announcements about Pearl Harbor or 9-11 or whatever. And so we expect that. We look forward to that. And so it was David's job. It was David's responsibility, notwithstanding that he had lost his son that day. Joab was told, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. The people stole back into the city that day as people who were ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice. Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David's reaction was turning the victory into defeat. His subjects felt ashamed rather than encouraged. Joab took it upon himself to confront David. I want to talk to Joab. Verse 5, it says, Then Joab came into the house to the king and he said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and your daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. Now therefore... Arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Wow is right. It's incredible. You've got to love Joab. As David's general, the people looked to him to act appropriately. So David wasn't acting appropriately. So they said, well... Tell Joab, Joab, you need to do something. Have you heard the phrase cowboy up? Well, you have if you live in Riverdale. (laughs) That's the motto of Riverdale, I think, you know. Cowboy up wasn't much known outside of rodeo circles until 2003 in the rest of the world uh, when it became the rallying cry for the Boston Red Sox. They had a couple of Texas players, Kevin Millar and Mike Timlin, and they injected this bit of rodeo slang into uh, their campaign to stir up the team and its fans. They had a T-shirt back then that read, are you going to cowboy up or just lay there and bleed? And uh, the idea, you, know, you get it. Man up is another expression that is more common. We use it to exhort people to step up and do what you're supposed to be doing. And that's what Joab does. He comes to Dave and he says, you need to cowboy up. You need to man up. Quit this. You're the king. As I indicated, we expect our leaders to man up. What we need to do is realize that this same exhortation is to us as well in times when we 
are allowing ourselves, for whatever reason, to shirk our responsibilities in the callings God has given us. See, being the king of Israel, that was a calling that David had. Your calling, maybe it's being a husband or a father or a mother or a wife or a child in a particular family, an employer, an employee, or whatever it is. Those are roles, those are callings that God has given you. There's callings in the church as well. So if I'm called, let's say, to be a husband and a father, I need to man up and act like that no matter what I might be feeling otherwise. I need to understand that with the calling comes a responsibility. There's, I hope you'll understand this, there's too much feeling in the church today. I'm not saying that there, we shouldn't love and, and show mercy and all of that, but there's too much of how I feel. Right now, I just don't feel like it. I don't feel like being a husband. It's so hard. It's so hard to be a mother these days. You know, I mean, and we get into this, and, and you know what? Joab ought to come to us and say, what are you talking about? This is your calling. You don't have time to grieve. You don't have time to be disappointed or angry or discouraged or whatever it is that you're indulging. You don't have time for that. People are depending on you. You're going to turn a potential victory into defeat. You're going to be defeated. And all those around you are going to be defeated. You're going to, whatever you think is bad, you're going to make worse. Because you're not living up to the calling. You say, well, I can't do it. Oh, yes, you can. It's that you won't do it. Because the biggest part of this is that God doesn't give you any callings without also giving you the enabling. Without giving you the power of the Holy Spirit to man up, to woman up, to cowboy up, however you want to put it. No matter how natural we may feel in terms of anger, discouragement, disappointment, we might feel trapped in a certain situation. No matter that, we are supernatural beings, being prepped for eternity. We need to and we're empowered to act the way God describes us in the Bible, in every one of our callings. It's a matter of submission to God in our calling. He knows what's going on in our homes or at work, in the church, out in the world at large. We need to look to him in submission to his will and act like the men, of women, men and women of God that we are. David reacted spiritually to Joab's exhortation. Verse 8, then the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told all the people saying, there is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king for everyone of Israel had fled to his tent. Just like that, things were put right. It may not happen as quickly for you as it did for David. But you nevertheless are being encouraged to walk in the spirit in your various callings. Live up to your responsibilities depending on God's empowering uh, that's a prerequisite to seeing things change. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 is a verse we like to use for our men's ministry. It's be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. That's the New American Standard Bible. In the King James, I think it reads, quit yourself as men. And the idea is act like a man. Act like a woman. Act like a Christian man, a Christian woman, or a Christian student or a Christian employee or, you know, you get the idea. Man up and you will find that the message of the gospel you are sent to deliver will be better received, better understood by those you've been sent to affect for good and for God. Let's pray together.